A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we'll discuss the horrendous situation unfolding on the ground in the besieged city of Mariupol. Plus, we'll hear from the former commanding general of the United States Army Europe on why the Russian military is struggling so much. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 26, and today I'm joined by Dom Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Venetia Rainey, the Telegraph's assistant foreign editor. Dom, can I start with you? It's been a few days since we last recorded this podcast. What have been the big developments over the weekend? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So the the big news, if it is if it is news, is that the Russian advance has stalled. That is the latest assessment from uh, British defence intelligence. <clears throat> the the advance to the northeast of uh, of the capital has stalled, and um, Russian advances into the northwest around the Hostomel airfield have been uh, repulsed. Again, that's MOD's MOD's words. They say that the bulk of um, Russian forces now twenty five kilometres from the city. The uh, Ukrainian forces have recaptured Makariv, which is 20 kilometers to the west. Outside of that, we've seen shelling in Odessa and the continued uh, obliteration, basically, of Mariupol, the terrible situation there, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, other things to note, that the, there have been daily protests, civilian protests in um, Hezon against the uh, the Russian occupation there. And up to now, they've been peaceful, but there have been reports this morning Verified reports that they've been Russian troops open fire with uh, two injuries, one of which I've seen myself. Um, so that's not a good, not a good development at all. We were worried. We've been we've talked about it here before. We've been worried for some time that these these civilian protests would eventually turn turn violent. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'll just uh, pause there. Yeah, so I, I think the sort of biggest movement that we've seen over the weekend is is in Mariupol and. It is the continued obliteration of the city, but what we've seen is that um, Russian. We started to see street fighting as the Russians started to enter the city. Um, we've seen more civilians streaming out on Friday and Saturday, and then last night Russia gave um, the Ukrainian government an, an ultimatum, essentially, to surrender by 3 a.m. UK time or else. And they didn't specify what that or else was, and that's sort of what we're waiting to find out today. The Ukrainian government did not surrender. Um, we've previously heard that it doesn't feel able to defend the city fully, um, but they still don't want to surrender. And what we've also seen is 
thousands of Ukrainian civilians being evacuated to Russia. Um, there have been reports that that's been happening against their will, that they're being deported, essentially. Maybe they're not being told where they're going. Um, and we, we're not quite clear on what sort of conditions they're being held in. There's been some suggestion of you know, camps and maybe the conditions aren't very good. And that's something we're looking into today. But so there's, there's some confusion around that. But we are starting to see the situation in Mariupol change. Essentially, we're expecting it to potentially fall to the Russians in the coming days or weeks. And we have already heard from a Russian general that it will take at least a week to be taken completely, if that's what the Russians want to do, um, because it is a very big city um, and it's been heavily, heavily bombed. You know, some residents who have left the city have fled, fled to the nearby city of Zaporizhia have said there's just not really a city left. We've previously heard estimates of 90% of the city being destroyed and some of the drone footage shows, you know, a city that looks like Aleppo in Syria, or we heard from the Greek consul who was the last diplomat to leave. He's now popped up in Athens. He said it's you know it's like a, it's like Guernica, it's like Stalingrad. The devastation is total, but it will still take Thanks a long time for the uh, Russians to take it. Just it's pick a big up on that um, news that Odessa has been shelled. Um, that's the first time I think is is it not? What's happening on Odessa? What are the Russians trying to achieve there? Dom, did you want to jump in? So Odessa is a major port city in the southwest of the country, on the on the, the coast, a major city. Not yet seen any Russian ground forces get get very close to it. If Russia was able to push further west along the coast and uh, and take the the land there and take the city of Odessa, not only would it mean that that Ukraine is completely cut off from the sea, but that's uh, that's the main port, the biggest port through which the, the trade flows. And uh, Ukraine uh, as a major economic hub, so it would be it would be a, a major objective for Russia. There have been defences put in place around there. We've seen civilians putting defences up on, on the beaches and around the city. So it would, by no means would be um, would be a, a quick operation, but that that doesn't mean that it needs to be any less destructive than the all the, the horrific stuff we're seeing in in Mariupol. And just on that, I mean, what we what we think Russia is trying to do by, by blocking these humanitarian corridors into Mariupol, and and it, it could easily be the same in Odessa if it got that far, is that what they're keen to do is to is to allowing their own aid and then use that through all their um, social media channels and, and what have you in the media to, to show that they are distributing aid themselves to, to lucky and grateful Ukrainians. So they're not interested in the civilians. They're not interested in civilians getting food and shelter and, um, and succor away from this violence. They're, they're looking to, uh, to weaponize Thanks, it. Tom. One uh, other thing I like. think potentially to pick up on, uh, we had an update on that story of the... Uh, the, the sort of the prank phone calls getting through to British ministers. Um, what's the latest on that? that? So that happened last last week. Yeah, so this happened last week with uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, Home Secretary Priti Patel, both uh, receiving prank calls. Um, the the Defence Secretary was actually on a Zoom call for eight or nine minutes with a with a chap who was who was allegedly the uh, Ukraine's Prime Minister. And after a few minutes of some fairly strange questions, which which veered into security territory. Ben Wallace decided to terminate the call. Um, Priti Patel later admitted that she also had been on the receiving end of, of some uh, hoax, but we don't know if there was actually any call made or if it was the same person or quite what the uh, quite what happened there. But uh, Downing Street today said that this was um, this was the, the work of the Russian state. Um, I don't think anyone massively doubted that at the time. Um, it doesn't hugely detract from what it was. As, as we said, it was it was an embarrassment. It was um, it was just a, a bit a bit silly. It's probably been played out. As Ben Wallace said, he'll be spliced and diced saying all sorts of extraordinary things. 
I mean, it's an embarrassment. As we said last week, if um, if Russia really wanted to to hack the phones or the communication system to get information, then the last thing they do is is make it so obvious that they were there. So this was this was on the the prank end of the of the spectrum rather than um, an extremely uh, clever and serious electronic warfare attack. Um, and I think we should probably expect more Thanks, of these Tom, as, um, it, as time moves on. Thanks, Tom. Finish I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I think it's also worth saying that, you know, Odessa is sort of cultural heart of Ukraine in some ways. It's a really historic city um, and we haven't seen it targeted so far, perhaps because it's not of strategic importance as much as the other cities that have been heavily targeted. Although obviously Russia is keen to block off the access to the sea path. But I, I think that the significance of if this city was bombed to the extent that we've seen in Mariupol, what that would mean for Ukraine, um, can't be understated. It would be, it would be really devastating. So let's talk about Mariupol. Um, can we put it a bit in context of, of the war so far? How have we got to, to, to where we are at the moment with the, with the Russian encirclement and the bombardment? And, and also, I'm sort of interested in what, what do you think, Dom and Venetia, is the strategic vision behind what the Russians are doing? So the port city of Mariupol, southeast of the country, it's um, sort of halfway between Crimea and, and Russia, Russian um, mainland, if you like. We've known for a long time, for years, we've known that, that Putin has wanted to have a land corridor down from, from Russia through the separatist-backed republic or areas and then through to Crimea. So he's always wanted a land corridor to be able to reinforce Crimea. The Mariupol is, is now the, the last bastion holding out there. Um, so it's it's it uh, not only is an important city in its own own right on the Sea of Azov, but um, it is standing in the way of this of this land corridor being uh, being created, and it's also from Russia's point of view helpful to demonstrate the firepower that it's capable and willing to bring in. So we saw in the east um, of the country, Kharkiv, Chernihiv, and, and elsewhere, in the early weeks of the war, quite what Russia was able to do and prepared to do in shelling civilian areas. And they've shown in Mariupol quite how quite how ruthless they they are prepared to be. So it's, it acts as a almost as a warning elsewhere. If they're prepared to do it there, then 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 should we should we expect to see it elsewhere? And so I mean this is and this idea that they they said over the weekend that um, everyone should surrender by by um, you know, five a.m. this morning. Then I mean this is this is classic. This is this is the language of an abuser. This is if any doubt was was ever there. This is them saying. Look what you're making me do to you. I'm I'm giving you the opportunity to give up and and concede to all my terms. And uh, and if if you don't, and if you can if you continue fighting, then I'm just going to have to roll in and 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 kill everybody. I mean, it's it's absolutely blatant terrorism. I've used the word before. I think it's apt, it's correct and it's apt in this in this scenario. So it's, it's horrific what's going on there. But we shouldn't be in any doubt that there's any that there's no there's no sort of Russia seeking to hold out. Uh, hold out an olive branch here and and offer any uh, humanitarian corridors. They had the chance to do that. They've had the chance to do it for weeks now, and they've they've chosen not to. Um, and they've continued shelling. They've continued using unguided weapons that are just going to land who knows where. But I mean, there's there's very little items of military interest in the city itself. So why are they shelling it? It's just terrorism against the civilian Initially. population, and it's 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 horrific. Yeah, just to jump in there, I think part of understanding why they're going so hard on Mariupol is that. This is sort of historical significance. So in 2014, when when the conflict in eastern Ukraine first really flared up, um, pro-Russian separatists sort of overran the city and the government was forced out. The government retook the city again later that year. 
Um, but I think there's a sense that perhaps for Putin, this is personal. And that's what we've seen the Ukrainian deputy prime minister saying this morning, that she thinks Putin is wreaking personal revenge on the people of Mariupol after he failed to take the city. Um, because it, it is senseless, you know, the bombing of a theatre which was housing displaced people, the bombing of an arts centre, mosques, churches, hospitals, maternity ward. You know, these things are not military targets as Don says, um, this is really about punishing the civilians there and making it a completely unlivable place. Um, we have published two, two, two parts of sort of extracts from a diary of a woman called Olga, who's been living during the siege of Mariupol and recently has escaped to Zaporizhia. Um, and it's, it's worth reading them, worth reading both of them, because she really brings to light the human elements of what it's like to be under siege. And this is a medieval siege. I mean, people have been living in basements, cooking food out of tins on top of candles, you know, just sleeping, making beds out of whatever they can scavenge. Olga mentions pulling apart the, the gym in a school where she worked. And all of her hard work there being undone. And she, she talks about imagining all these, thinking of all these sort of children's projects that she'd been working on sort of being destroyed. I mean, people have been living a very basic existence there, just waiting, trying to find a way to escape. And a lot of them haven't been able to check their phones or get messages or you know, even find out where and when the humanitarian corridors are. So they're slowly coming out in dribs and drabs now and we're starting to get more information out of that city. But there are still a lot of things we don't know. For example, that theatre that was bombed where we heard reports that up to a thousand people had been sheltering. We know some people made us alive. We don't know how many bodies there might still be buried underneath. Rescue efforts to retrieve people from the rubble if they're alive or bodies if they're not have been really hard to to get underway and, and there's been very little information around those things and I think that's something we'll continue to see as we see street fighting as the Russians continue to and try to just take on the city that, in the coming week. I think I've got two questions. Um, Venetia, firstly for you, just in terms of the journalism of it, as you talked about the difficulty of f finding the information from from Mariupol, um, how, how are we actually doing that at the moment? I assume it's got a lot more difficult in the past few days. Um, what, what, what are you doing as, 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 a, as a foreign desk um, as, as our sources dry up? Yeah, it has been. It has been really difficult, particularly there have been some photographs and, and video that's come out. There was an AP photographer and videographer who stayed there a lot longer than any other journalists. So, for example, that very those very striking um, images of women emerging from the bombed maternity ward, a pregnant woman on a stretcher and another woman sort of clutching um, her belly. You know, they were able to supply those images, but we haven't really had many journalists on, on the ground to sort of, you know, file stories with that. And it's been very hard to get into contact with anyone and get the stories behind these pictures. They left. So, you know, we've been having even less information. What we have been doing is one of our correspondents has been going to Zaporizhia um, regularly every day to meet with people who are being evacuated to there from Mariupol. And that's how he came across the um, diary, Olga's diary. And it's just asking people, you know, what what has it been like there? And do you still know people who are there? Is there anyone there who we can contact? Obviously, there are some Ukrainian officials who have been putting out statements on Telegram. We keep a very close eye on those. And it's really sort of crowdsourcing a combination of the sort of images, people who have fled and people who are still there and our officials and putting out statements and trying to pull all of that into comprehensive Thanks, coverage. And but it's, Dom, it is we've tricky. spoken previously about the difficulties of house-to-house house, uh, an urban conflict. What's the sort of military situation on the ground in, in Mariupol? Does the Ukrainian 
army have much of a force left in the city still? Will, will they be able to defend it if the Russians attack? It's very confusing or confused, a confused situation. We have a, a graphic, the latest update, we have a graphic on our uh, website of, um, of Mariupol showing buildings that are either completely destroyed or partially damaged. I'd urge everyone to go and have a look at that. That will give you a, an idea for quite how devastated the city is. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of buildings left um, standing or habitable. Um, Ukrainian forces are now in, in the centre of the city, and, and that seems to be the last real formed defence. Um, other, other than that, it it is it, it kind of goes against the the rule of the of, of, of sort of five attackers to one defender for an urban area. I mean that that doesn't really count if you're flattening everything in front of you, which seems to be pretty much the the tactic that uh, that Russia are going for. So so they are they are rolling in. They're they're using long range. Fires, long-range artillery, and and um, and missiles, and uh, and just sort of crunching their way into the into the city centre. But I would urge people to go and have a look at that that graphic on our website. And is it, there any it, prospect it really of, brings it home? Um, Ukrainian military elsewhere in the country being able to to come to their aid or not? Difficult at the moment, partly because of the geography and the distances are so huge, and also partly because the, uh, the huge amount of the Ukrainian forces are in the in the east uh, fighting in the in the separatist held uh, regions plus you have an enormous force around uh, around Kyiv so it, it it would take time um, to to redeploy and um, and getting there is one thing but but actually having a coherent plan and, and fighting your way your way in is, is quite something else so it would be it would be extraordinarily difficult to get there um, from the ground plus of course you would need some degree of, of air um, su uh, superiority, if not air supremacy, um, to be able to to operate on the ground with any, any to any great confidence. So it would be extremely difficult uh, at the moment for for Ukraine to um, to have any meaningful and we've reinforcement spoken, um, into the south earlier about about these being about, about the deportations um, was being Nazi tactics, forced deportations. I'd wonder if both of you would speak a little bit more to this. What what are the Russians trying to uh, trying to achieve with this? I mean, I, I think what they'd like the world to think is that they're providing a humanitarian corridor out of a, um, a conflict situation. And, you know, they've been trying to blame what's going on in Mariupol on Ukraine. Um, that's the line that they're feeding the Russian public. And the way that they phrase people going to Russia, Ukrainians being evacuated to Russia, is is exactly that, that you know, they're being evacuated for humanitarian purposes. Um, what we're hearing is 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 different from that. It's it's unclear exactly sort of what conditions they're being compelled under, what you know, what sort of situation they're finding themselves in when they get to Russia. But uh, it's it's unlikely. Let's put it this way: it's, it's unlikely that Ukrainians who have been living under siege of Russian bombs in Mariupol would want to go to Russia um, for an like indefinite period I mean, of time. As well. I mean, I'd be interested a little bit in the in the history. This is is this the this tactic has been used before, has it not? Yeah, it has, and it's it's pretty unseemly to uh, take people away, take their passports off them, take their um, their phones and documents away from them, um, and we've seen images of, of men being, uh, if not totally strip searched, but then being stripped from the waist up to show any tattoos, which could be unit affiliations or some sort of indication that they are they're part of the security forces. So, I mean, this is not a humanitarian act. It it is it is uh, quite the reverse, and they and we've seen them use these humanitarian corridors before or the the prospect of humanitarian corridors as as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago there's 
there are many, many different competing interests and objectives when we have when we talk about ceasefires or humanitarian corridors, and, and very rarely from from both sides and the and the uh, the international community and the NGOs and the civilians caught in the middle. Very rarely do all these objectives overlap, so that the priority at any one moment is is just the civilian safety. So there's, it's always these things are always loaded with with ulterior motives. Yeah, it's, it's deeply troubling to see people being being taken away to 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 Russia, almost against their will. Virtually, I mean, of course, they want to get away from the get away from the violence, but then to to, to effectively have no no further choice or vote or have their papers taken away from them. So, just looking is, forward, uh, is deeply um, worrying. As you said, Venetia, last night the Russians demanded surrender. The Ukrainians said no. Uh, what do we think will happen over the next few days, the next week? That's that's really not clear at the moment. You know, I think we'll con- I think we'll continue to see fighting in the city. We'll continue to see civilians fleeing. Whether Russia will step up its bombardment, hard to see how much more it could step it up. You know, we're already seeing that bombs are dropping every ten minutes at the moment. It could use new, worse weapons. You know, it, we, we've talked about the use of possible use of chemical weapons before. That's still in its arsenal if it wants to escalate things further. But probably what we'll see is sort of is street fighting as Russian troops try to secure the city and Ukrainian troops fight back. I, I had one other question, Venetia, potentially you could answer this. Uh, we had a story in The Telegraph today about, the, about how further Wagner Group assassins have entered Ukraine with orders to kill uh, Zelensky. Um, could you speak a, a little bit about this? Um, they've tried before and failed. Why are they trying again? Yeah, well, so there's supposed to be this crack team of assassins, and they've been behind a lot of really awful um, killings and human rights abuses in other countries around the world, particularly in African countries. Um, And we had heard that they've been sent in previously to try and assassinate Zelensky, now we're hearing it again. We don't know tons about them, they're sort of shrouded in mystery. Um, but the fact that they are active in Ukraine is is certainly a worrying sign. That said, there does appear to be some sort of mole either in the Russian intelligence services or perhaps in the Wagner Group itself, um, because their attempts so far have been foiled. Um, that's that's as much as I can say on that. Thanks, Venetia. Um, I saw the MOD's uh, update this morning, Dom, um, which said that Kiev, despite a lack of progress, and we've spoken about, spoken about this earlier remains a key objective. Um, I'm just interested to see, hear your thoughts on wh- whether you think that the, Russians, uh, the Russian military is overextending itself. I mean, it seems as if they're, they're trying to press in Kiev and being thrown back, they're pressing in Mariupol, they're starting to shell Odessa. Uh, we've already spoken about the, the lengthy supply chains and their supply issues. Um, is, is, this, is this a tactical misstep? Well, they've run out of ideas, basically. I mean, they, they, they went for this lightning advance in the first day or 48 hours to try and um, cut off Kiev, take, take the all the organs of state and power, and then basically turn around to the armed forces and civilians of Ukraine and say, there you go, job job done. Um, it's, it's all over. Sue for peace. We haven't uh, destroyed the, the, your, your culture, your country, your economic livelihood. Um, so we're not that bad. Um, let's sue for peace. And of course, that didn't work. It got bogged down. We're, we're now nearly a month later. And they are still thrashing around for ideas. We, you start hearing this phrase uh, more and more in the media of, um, of culmination or a culminating point. And all that means in, in military terms is, is taking a break. So it's basically, you know, if you're, if you're on, a, on a long drive to holiday with the kids in the back, every now and again, you do need to uh, stop and have a sandwich and just get out of the car with the kids all screaming and, and what have you. So it's the same sort of in military terms. You, you, you come to a natural point of exhaustion 
whereby you need to just stop, regroup, rest, recover, recover the, the people and the equipment, uh, rearm, and then and then push on. And also these these culminating points can also act as a time to think about your plan. And as we said, the failure to cut off Kiev in the early hours of the war and then push for this southern corridor means that they are now just relying on artillery to flatten the place, I think, pretty much while they while they try and think of what else to do. Because as we've said before, in grand strategic terms, Russia has lost this war. They've cut themselves off from the international community. Whatever shape or form um, Putin's regime survives after this, and there's big questions about whether it will survive at all, but if he does survive in power, then Russia is a pariah nation in the eyes of the world. It's, it's going to be largely cut off from the, uh, from the world system. It's having to well, when the Moscow stock market opens again, I, I'd be very surprised if China doesn't just roll in and, and buy the country effectively. So he's mortgaging his long-term, the country's long-term future to China for a short-term gain in, in his eyes. But Russia is, has, has lost this. It's going to be it's horrific to see what's going to happen to the, to the, to the younger generations who, who don't believe in, in this guy and his ideology. So that's playing out on the on the ground. They've got no other great ideas. They've got no particular strategy. They simply haven't got the numbers to take the cities, let alone take the whole country. So it's either going to descend into some long, grinding, horrendous stalemate with occasional flare-ups, um, or it'll have to come come to a negotiated settlement. But what we see at the moment is, is pretty much all that Russia are capable and prepared to do. This standing off firing lots of artillery and missiles and flattening the place, hoping, as we've said before, hoping that the Ukrainian resolve collapses before the Russian military machine collapses. So let's talk um, about that uh, negotiated settlement. We, we saw today uh, Turkey's foreign minister said Ukraine and Russia are close to an agreement. Given everything we've been speaking about, um, it, from, 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 from this position, reading the news, that feels quite far off. Is, is, that, a fair, is that a fair assessment? Yes, I think that's a very fair assessment. I think I think this is we're still in the in the realm of hope at the moment, rather than any any firm concrete plans. I don't think the negotiations have settled down into into a period of um, a very serious negotiation. I think both sides uh, still see an advantage on the battlefield, and that's it, very rarely do do serious negotiations happen whilst whilst either side. Um, considers that their their options are best placed by continuing the military campaign. So I think at the moment we're just seeing the the very early days of uh, of of the the whole negotiation process. It's not unexpected that that Russia will, will keep holding out these this idea that oh there's a break breakthrough just around the corner, just another few days because of course the longer they they hold out they, they dangle this carrot that it's all going to be all going to be better this time next week. Um, then they're hoping that the less that uh, the international community will, will maintain its support for Ukraine um, and it won't bring in any more sanctions and uh, and it will break the resolve of, of the Ukrainians. Because why they're figuring, why would you why would you put your life on the line for another advance that, that, that it could all be over in a couple of days time? I mean, that's what they're gambling on. But I think it's I think it's much more hope at the moment than any serious negotiation. Thanks, Tom. Venetia, would you like the final word on this? I think just one other thing to mention that we haven't quite discussed yet is sort of what we're seeing in Russia on the ground at the moment. Um, there have been lots of reports of shelves empty in supermarkets, shortages of really basic foodstuffs like sugar, salt, cooking oil. Um, I think we're already starting to see the impact 
of significant sanctions. The EU is meeting this week to discuss a fifth round of sanctions. Um, you know, that pariah nation status that Don mentioned has come so quickly and will continue to grow in the coming weeks. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that changes the calculus, the Russian calculus in the peace talks as you know, discontent in Russia starts to grow as they see in front of their eyes, even if they don't entirely understand why because of the information blackout, but as they start to see with their own eyes uh, the effect of the Ukraine war um, on their standard of living. Um, uh, Tom and Vinish, anything from either of you uh, before we finish? Any final thoughts, things we need to look for this week? I was just going to say, please make sure you read Olga's diary. Our social team will share the links. It's really a fantastic and very moving read. And I was just going to say, keep an eye on Slovakia. Slovakia uh, yesterday received from uh, from Germany, um, and well, jointly German and Dutch troops are now manning US Patriot missiles in, in Slovakia, long-range air defence missile system. And that frees up the possibility that, uh, that Slovakia could gift their S-300 Russian-made, very capable, although slightly old, but very capable air defence system to Ukraine. So, so the battle now is, to, is not just to give anti-air and anti-tank missiles, um, but it's also to start pushing these, these things further back, the, the, the air power further back. So if Slovakia were to gift their S-300 to Ukraine, that would be a very significant um, development indeed. So just keep an eye on that. Thank you to Dom and Venetia there. Now, to dig into the military performance of the Russian army, my colleague Mutaz Ahmed from the Telegraph's comment team spoke to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. General Hodges is the former commanding general of the US military in Europe. Mutaz started by asking him why high defence spending by Russia doesn't appear to be paying off. Well, of course, all of us have uh, spent a lot of money on uh, modernization and procurement that didn't turn out well, so... That's not unique uh, to the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, But I think in this case, as I've looked at it, it looks to me to be the reflection of decades of corruption in the uh, Russian defense industry and and in the Ministry of Defense. And and of course, there's a huge difference between having uh, really good equipment and having really good forces. The the human part, the, the training, the the experience, uh, all of these things come into play as well. And I just don't think that um, Russian exercises, that they train with the same rigor that uh, NATO forces do, train up to the point of failure, that sort of thing. That requires quite a bit of intellectual honesty Mm. and uh, a willingness to tolerate mistakes until you get it right. And I don't don't think that's part of the culture there. Did did you expect them to have better sort of experience going into this? I did. I mean, I, I saw how much they were investing. They started their modernization back in 2007. Of course, they went to Georgia in 2008, did poorly there, but uh, then went to work trying to fix what they did from Georgia. And then, of course, they were in Syria for a while. But what I was slow, as I reflected back on that, and I'm like, my goodness, how did I overestimate so badly? I should have realized that actually... All of these different things, none of them were on a scale of of what they're trying right now. So joint operations where you try to bring together uh, air, land, sea, special forces, cyber, all of this, they don't have any experience at it. I mean, what they did in Syria was largely with uh, mercenaries mm. or operating out of secure airfields um, against, frankly, a, a, a different type of uh, opponent than what they face in Ukraine. 
And when they when they took Crimea in 2014, it was a completely different uh, set of circumstances. As I look back, most of the what they did was by the same small group of uh, their airborne forces and Spetsnaz, not the bulk of the army. I'm pretty sure that nobody told the, the top level staff, hey, uh, by the way, we haven't never done this before. Yeah. And uh, we haven't exercised it. We haven't done it for real. And, and so I, I, I imagine there's a lot of surprise going on there. Logistics is, is a word we've heard a lot about. You, you wrote an article for us about the logistical problems. I think a lot of people don't quite understand just how important it is to any military campaign. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Of course, a modern military requires fuel. It requires lots of uh, high-end expensive uh, munitions. And then like uh, exactly as uh, Roman legionnaires from 2,000 years ago, soldiers are still going to eat two or three times a day. So you've got to deliver food and water, take care of them that are injured or various other things. You have to do maintenance uh, and, and you have to deliver the, the bulk stuff that they're going to consume at a much higher rate than you ever would do in an exercise. Uh, and if you think about the amount of fuel required for all of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of armored vehicles, trucks, etc., I mean, uh, I've seen estimates of at least as many as 200 large 5,000-gallon tanker, what we would call a 5,000-gallon tanker. What was that? That's almost 20,000 liters, 200 of them per day. And they've got to be filled up somewhere. So there's a big fuel, either a pipeline somewhere or a distribution network on the other side of the border in Russia. And then they've got to work their way down the various roads. And of course, it didn't take the Ukrainians long to figure out if they could knock out a few of these fuel trucks, then there's then all the vehicles up front start running out of fuel. Ammunition always exceeds predictions or planned consumption when you get into real combat. You know, when we exercise, there's a certain amount of ammunition was allocated for the exercise, and that's it. And so that's what you shoot. Whereas when you go into combat, you're going to expend all kinds of artillery and small arms ammunition, rockets, uh, because now you're trying to suppress somebody that's shooting back at you. And so the consumption rate is always higher. And then when you start talking about cities, uh, it goes up even more. And so I think, again, the lack of experience and, and rigorous training, they, they did not anticipate properly. You mentioned the Ukrainians taking advantage of these logistical problems. What, what kind of equipment do you think we should be sending to Ukraine to help with this sort of strategic strikes? So interesting, of course, we're starting to see reports now that the Russians are pulling troops out of the attacking or frontline units, bringing them back to secure these lines of communication. So this is a this is going to be a, a, a drain on an already severe manpower problem for them. They're going to have to pull troops back just to guard trucks. And by the way, my brigade had to do that in 2003 during the initial invasion in Iraq, where um, Saddam Fedayeen were coming out and hitting the 3rd Infantry Division's fuel trucks. This is an age-old problem of securing lines of communication. Um, the weapons, of course, that are useful are uh, drones that can deliver strikes against uh, fuel trucks. You don't have to destroy every truck or every tank, but if you can hit all the fuel trucks, then you can sort of take your time on the on the other stuff. 
Uh, I'm excited about these 100 switchblade drones that the, the U.S. government has just decided to provide. Those will be quite helpful at attriting uh, critical things such as uh, fuel trucks and, and air defense systems. The big battle we were talking about last week was we were expecting a massive battle for Kiev, the capital. You said in your article for us that you thought it was very unlikely that the Russians would be able to capture Kiev and and almost impossible for them to hold it. What's your assessment now? Yeah, even more convinced. Look, they they haven't been able to take Mariupol after three weeks. Uh, Kharkiv still haven't taken it. And of course, what they're what they're doing, they're they're uh, destroying these cities, but they haven't been able to completely encircle and take them. So if they can't do that, then I think there's zero hope that they could do that to Kiev. In in 1943, uh, when the uh, Soviet army, the Red Army, was uh, at, in one of its counteroffensives, was trying to recapture Kiev, a much smaller Kiev, from the German Wehrmacht. They used 700,000 soldiers, and it took a month before they could finally get the Wehrmacht out of Kiev. So, you know, the exact numbers of Russian troops that are available for fighting inside Ukraine right now, you know, maybe around 150,000. And that's not 150,000 uh, Dragoon guards or, or something like that. No. I mean, these are, that's all, all numbers. It's just mathematically not feasible that they could even encircle Kiev. Uh, which is divided by a huge river, by the way, um, let alone uh, take it. The answer some people give to that is, well, the Russian strategy has always been to slowly strangle these cities and and that the, the current situation will just become more and more untenable for the Ukrainians if they keep disrupting food supplies and, and so on. Do you think that sounds right? The ability to strangle Ukraine has passed. They had the chance, but uh, that, that's changed now. Of course, Ukraine does have a problem. Uh, they cannot use their seaports for export of anything. You know, once uh, they can't use Mariupol or Bordansk, this is going to be a long-term problem that, that yeah. will have to be addressed somehow during the negotiations. But in the tactical sense, I think that the lines of communication from Poland and Romania, uh, Hungary and Slovakia, um, that's more than enough to to make sure that we can keep pushing in the uh, ammunition and weapons that are required. Some military scholars think that Russia has reached the point where it can't actually extricate itself from this stalled military advance. They, there's, there's a theory that um, once you stall to a certain extent in the battlefield, it, it, it becomes basically impossible to advance again because you lose the element of surprise and units settle in and, and, and as you said, these logistical problems cement themselves. You sound like you don't think there is a way back for the Russian military in terms of conquering Ukraine. I think that Russia is, is just about at what Clausewitz calls uh, the culminating point. Yes. That, that Russia, within the next five, seven days, will no longer be able to to press forward in offensive operations. Of course, they can continue to shell these cities. They're going to continue killing innocent people. But um, I think that they will have culminated, as, as uh, Clausewitz calls it, because of the resistance of Ukraine, 
because of the logistical problems we've talked about, because of the serious manpower issues that they're now dealing with. I mean, my goodness, they've asked for Syria to send fighters. So I don't think they can go forward. Now, can they extract uh, tonight? I mean, President Putin could say, hey, guys, you know, I really screwed up here. Let's uh, let's back it up. Not, not very likely this is going to happen, but this is a problem entirely of their own making. And what I expect is that in the coming weeks, uh, Ukraine is going to make them bleed. We need to keep pouring it on now so that we can, in fact, reach that tipping point uh, where the momentum shifts totally to the Ukrainian side so that they can continue to punish Russian forces and and get to a better negotiating position. Now, obviously, the use of chemical weapons can change things. The use of a nuclear weapon can change things. But I don't know that that changes it for the better. I'm not convinced that the people around Vladimir Putin are willing uh, to let him do that. I, I see no positive outcome after either of those even less likely that uh, countries around the world would be willing to support them somehow. Just a final question. What lessons can can we, first Europe and then the West as a whole, including America, learn from this? We've all been reminded once again of the importance of positive, inspirational leadership. Um, the picture of President Zelensky walking around in a T-shirt with a cell phone on day five or so. I mean, that really, that fired my imagination. Not only has he inspired his own country, but other countries. And by the way, there's lots of Zelensky's out there. Ukraine is fighting a decentralized fight by and large. You've got mayors and local commanders doing all the fighting. This is not all being controlled from some bunker inside Kiev. So that's that's one thing. Um, secondly, uh, we see, again, the, the price that you pay when you're not trained and ready. You, you may have expensive kit, but if you have a trained and and uh, that's what the Russians are paying a terrible price and, and their young soldiers, these conscripts. But even, uh, you know, they've had four or five generals killed. And it's been interesting seeing the reaction of people like how that happened. That's because these guys are not trained. They're, they're using cell phones. The third thing I'd say, this is a much broader one that I'm, I'm, I'm still wrestling with myself. Our alliance, I mean, most successful alliance in history of the world. Uh, and it, it doesn't come in a box like that. I mean, you have to invest time and commitment resources to make sure that we all stick together and it's happened. But we have somehow been unable or unwilling to do something uh, to help a country right on the, on the edge of NATO, Ukraine. And what happens in Ukraine has huge impact on several NATO countries, but yet somehow we've, we've limited ourselves. And the Russians know it. I mean, the more that the White House says no World War Three, no boots on the ground, when we when we keep saying what we're not going to do, despite the massive advantages we have over Russia. You think there should be um, more, more, more strategic ambiguity, as, as they say, keep just. Yeah. yeah. And look, of course, there's a huge threat or risk when you talk about Russia, no matter what their problems are, they still have thousands of nuclear weapons. So uh, I'm not saying we should be careless. But I think we have been too self-limiting. And so maybe this is something about our great alliance that um, that, that needs some uh, uh, much deeper thought about how, how do we address issues on the on the periphery? Uh, I'm not talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about on the periphery. On that note, uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the privilege. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Sophie Coe.